welcome to Democracy How podcast hosted by me, Sean Donovan. And you are listening to this, maybe, right now. Or you're reading a transcript of this, which I don't know who transcribed this. But hello, welcome back after a long hiatus. Uh, this podcast comes out regularly. And uh, to be honest, this might be the last episode, or I might have another one. Uh, <laughs> this is old audio I recorded. Well, this I'm recording now, but the audio that you hear is from months ago, so there might be some uh, old information being talked about. But uh, today's guest is Stephanie McMillan. She is a author, a cartoonist, and most importantly, an organizer for Revolution. What does that mean? We'll talk about it when, uh, in her interview. Uh, other than that, what's been going? What's been going on? I got an update. The last episode uh, featuring Brent Schmidt, Occupy activist and comedian. Uh, there was a recent development with the, the police officer, aka Pig, who uh, batoned him in the head. Uh, apparently, that dude just got uh, promoted. As what usually happens with the bad cops, they get promoted why not so he's in charge of some new uh or charge of a precinct now there he is uh, 68th precinct in new york ah what a piece of shit so he batons kids in the head and then he gets promoted that's america for you uh so anyway <laughs> they also in this article they also quoted the podcast which i thought was funny we got it. We Democracy How gets a shout out like it's a real, a real podcast. This is fake. Everything's fake. Nothing exists. Okay. Anyway, so <clears throat> I had some. What's been What's been happening? What's been going on on the news? A Trump's Trump's been going on. Sanders, Trump and Sanders, hooray! Whatever those things are, it's fun watching uh, people shut down Trump pro the uh, the Trump rallies. Protesters go and shut it down. Shut that shit down. Uh, what else have I been doing? What else is there? Uh, I think this is an interesting podcast um, in terms of my development, uh, my political development. Because when I started this podcast, I wasn't, uh, yeah, I was political, yeah, but I wasn't completely sold on, you know, what needed to be done to fix the problems. And, uh, now, every time you, every time you listen to this, if you're listening to this uh, sequentially here, uh, every episode I become a little bit more radical and a little bit more active and i think this is a good good progress or at least a progress that will lead me to getting batoned in the head at some point inevitably by a pig and then uh, watching that pig get promoted uh but yeah so now i read a lot read a lot of books uh and uh, i've been uh, helping out with a mass organization volunteering some of my time to uh, help distribute some groceries to uh, the working class over here in Los Angeles. So I'm starting to participate, and that's the important thing. And we talk about this, uh, we'll talk about this with Stephanie when we get to the interview. Um, How do you take theory and put it into practice? That's a huge thing. So if we're talking about organizing people, organizing people can't happen in a book. So you can learn and read as much Marx as you want, and that's a good thing. It's definitely good to have your theory and have your knowledge of history and economics and politics and all that stuff, but uh, 
you have to take it out of the textbook at some point because if you're going to organize anybody in any form to either resist capital or to overthrow the bourgeoisie, uh, you got to hit the streets. You got to talk to people face to face, and uh, you got to try and do something to politicize them and uh, get them on your side. So I'm taking baby steps in that direction. Uh, what will come of it? Who knows? But uh, I'm early death, probably early death. I'm going with that. So I have some old audio here from some people I thought it would be an interesting thing uh, and turned out to be not that interesting. <laughs> so I only have a couple of them. Uh, I wanted to get the idea or, or get the people's idea of what who the working class is. Like who makes up the working class is a term I uh, throw around a lot. And it gets thrown around a lot in the media too when you watch like these idiots campaigning and they always speak to the working class or the middle class. But what does that actually mean? Uh, and do people know what it means? And uh, I talked to a few people, not too many, and I got their ideas. Uh, the thing is, I started to, I'll play the audio, and then we'll get back to it. But uh, yeah, more or less anybody who uh, has a job sort of seems to identify as being uh, working class. That was a trend I started to pick up on. But let's play the audio. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Good. Okay, so today I'm just asking people about uh, what makes up the working class. Like, who makes it up? What kind of jobs? What, what would you say? I'd say in today's time, anybody that has a job is the working class. Anybody that's up there getting a paycheck to, to live. But that you wouldn't extend that to, like, CEOs or, like, people making millions of dollars, would you? No, because that's, a, to me, if, if you're looking at, at what a class is, you can look at rich, poor, middle... When it comes to just working class, just that title, that's everybody. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Hello. How's it going? Uh, It's going well. (laughs) Um, So today we're just talking about what the working class is. Um, Like, what what do you think makes up the working class? Like, what kind of jobs? Um, I'm thinking that the typical eight to five, Monday through Friday jobs. Yeah, like yeah. office work or just any kind of work, like, like any kind of work that's not um, a that's not something like a CEO or something. Like so, pretty <laughs> yeah. much anyone who's not like a boss. Yeah, is pretty, pretty much, much work, makes up the working yeah. class. Okay. That's my that's my perception of it. Yes. Okay. Cool. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Hello. So I'm just asking people today uh, what they think uh, constitutes the working class. Like, what kind of jobs? constitute the working class? What do you think? Probably downtown. Working downtown? Well, I mean, my girlfriend does flowers and stuff down there. She works in the flower district. So. Yeah, so you'd classify that as working class? Well, it's hard to say something <laughs> like that. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's just like, because it's, uh, I'm just trying to get a poll of, like, what people think. But you wouldn't, would you constitute, like, uh, like um, CEOs and, like... My dad worked for Boris for 37 years. And, yeah. You know, but besides that, I don't know, because I'm pretty much... I've been a street person my whole life, which yeah. is you know, it's right. totally different side of the border. Right, yeah. right. So, but it's hard to say. Yeah, probably. Uh, I guess white collar workers, wouldn't you say, would be what it would be? I, you know, I would say I would say blue collar workers are more working class yeah, than yeah. white collar. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, that makes yeah. sense. That yeah. Makes sense. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Good. So uh, today's episode is about uh, the working class. Uh, how would you define the working class? Like, what kind of jobs make up the working class? 
Well, I guess it's more of the blue-collar jobs, you know, the hard-working people who just earns the minimum wage. And um, they're the people who are unappreciated in the workforce. And I think that's my definition of a working class. So like more like manual labor type? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. And would you consider yourself working class? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. What do you do? I'm a nurse. Oh, you're a nurse? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a good job. To have. I wipe ass and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Back to me. A couple things there. Ugh. What a tool. I hate myself. <laughs> Just listen to this audio. I'm like, man, I stink. Anyway, that was interesting. I thought uh, I talked to that uh, the guy who self-identified as a street person for a while afterwards. I should have just got audio of him uh, talking about his life, which was pretty awesome. But it was kind of off-topic for this episode. Anyway, interesting dude. And, uh, you know, people who live on the street, they're human beings. They, uh, they're capable. They have thoughts and feelings and emotions. And they're not frightening, scary, bad people. Even though sometimes they may have mental health issues and not be all there a lot of them are just uh, you know regular people you can you can talk to them it's okay anyway uh yeah so there's kind of a trend there people uh, thought that a working class just kind of anyone with a job um you know they seem like they excluded millionaires or like ceos or bosses and management uh, but if we're talking about working class in a sort of marxist sense which is what i'm always talking about anyway uh the working class uh it's not a, i mean it's not a 100 percent strict term uh, it's not rigid there it can you know it's pliable in, in some ways but mostly what it's talking about is uh marx was talking about the material uh, of our society the material wealth of our society so the commodities and raw materials how do they come to be uh, who brings them into existence? Uh, and, and uh, you know, where do those come from? And that comes from the working class. So basically, if you're mining raw materials or farming uh, or assembling those raw materials into the uh, goods that uh, become commodities and sold uh, on the market, uh, that constitutes the working class. So the guy at the end there who said he was a nurse, uh, well, nurse is certainly physical labor, and it's a hard job and a, a good job uh, in a noble job um a nurse really isn't um a member of the working class because they're not producing uh material commodity there's not a you know you go to work and there's not a thing that you have made at the end of the day that's being sold uh so in marxism the working class is directly related with creating the material wealth of society so i think that's a distinction uh it's an important distinction to make because in my personal life uh, i work in tech support Uh, i'm not going to say the name of the company because i'll probably get fired uh for having this podcast out there but uh, yeah i answer the phone all day now i didn't i don't get paid particularly well but i don't get uh you know i'm doing all right um but uh it's not a working class job i don't produce anything i just i work support at the end of my day i don't create anything there's nothing that i make and talking about it now makes it seem very uh pointless pointless is the word i'm looking for it makes it seem very pointless that because you start to think about that you know like how many jobs are out there you're just sort of managing things without creating anything there's a lot of those jobs and there that constitutes a petty bourgeoisie is what the marxist term is or the middle class that's uh, 
where I am, sort of. But I think there there's a couple distinctions. The petty bourgeoisie uh, in Marxism isn't directly antagonistic to the working class and can sometimes become the working class's allies. Um, the real antagonistic relationship is that of the capitalists who are actually uh, reaping the surplus value off of the workers, uh, basically directly exploiting them. I, I think today, uh, this is just my speculation, but I think it I think it holds true somewhat, is uh, a lot of college graduates now are functionally... Uh, like myself, uh, come out of college, you get into a job that's, you know, decent paying, but you're, you you have to make up for all the debt that you had. You're tens of thousands of dollars in debt. So you're getting paid all right, but you're functionally poor. Uh, you have to keep paying back the system for the bill of goods that you got that didn't really deliver the job. And I think that is something that's kind of important. Uh, I don't know if I... You know, I think about my life and had I got out of college and got like a super high paying job in some field, whatever, like my life probably would have looked a lot different and my thoughts and beliefs probably would have changed and they may not have been the same. You know, I don't think I would have come to uh, communism or really uh, sort of made it a goal to examine capital and examine the economy and uh, figure out for myself how that works. But uh I was put in the position where I come out of work uh, or come out of college and have to get a job and to pay back my loans. And it's taken me, I'm not out of debt yet. It's been 10 years. I think hopefully finally this year I might be out of debt, but that sort of awakens you. I would hope, I hope if anyone out there is uh, connecting with this and why you have student loan debt, why you have so much of it, uh, start investigating the, the economy, start reading Marx, uh, check out what the capital, uh, what the communists had to say about capitalism. Uh, you might not be the working class per se, but you might find yourself in your beliefs, um, you might find yourself more allied with the working class. And I think that's very important. And uh, we're going to talk more about the working class and all that good stuff and uh, revolution. How do you organize the working class then to uh, break their chains and put down uh, the bourgeoisie? The ruling class, the capitalists, how do we get the put them down for good? We're going to kick it over to uh, my interview with uh, Stephanie McMillan, cartoonist, author, organizer for Revolution. Uh, check it out. I apologize. This uh, audio quality is not too great. Uh, we did it over Skype. So uh, bear with the audio. Uh, but she's got a lot of important things to say. She's a uh, very smart, informative, uh, interesting person. Uh, let's hear what she has to say. So why don't we just start with uh, you talking a little bit about yourself, you know, how you sort of came to be a organizer for revolution, or as much as okay. you want to publicly share. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I live in Fort Lauderdale. I have pretty much my whole life, except for a period in New York when I went to college. Mm-hmm. Um, I was politicized in high school first, when yep. someone gave me a book about nuclear war called The Fate of the Earth. And this was during the Reagan era when Reagan was making jokes about sending nuclear weapons to the Soviet Union and the Cold War was really at a fever pitch. Hmm. So I didn't really want to read the book because I kind of understood on some level that if I confronted the fact that nuclear war was a possibility, then I would have to do something about it. I was really not interested in politics at the time. I was about 15. Um, Yeah. And the person who gave it to me kept um, bugging me about it. Like, you've got to read this. You've got to understand what's going on. You're part of the youth. You have a responsibility for the future. 
So finally I read it, and of course, you know, it, it upset me so much that I did feel like, okay, there's nothing really more important than making sure this doesn't happen. Right. Uh, was this person, um, was it a uh, fellow student, or is it just somebody else in your life? Uh... No, he was um, a relative, an older oh. relative. That's good. So you had like a, a mentor sort of um, in your life. Not re- I wouldn't call him that. It's just that he gave me the book and, and wanted me to read it, but he was not active himself. Oh, I see. So he was basically pushing the problem onto the next generation. Yeah. I think that's pretty much how it goes, right? Kind of. <laughs> it's uh, unfortunate, but that's how it happens. So you're also uh, an artist, uh, and uh, were you drawing and uh, making pictures and making art in high school, or did you come to that after sort of getting politicized? Well, I had always liked art ever since I was a kid, and I liked doing it. Um, but I, the first actual political piece of art I did was an illustration for an article that I wrote for the school paper after reading that book. Oh, And the article was to try to convince the other high school students that this was an important issue that they should worry about. And um, the, the how, did, <laughs> how did that go over? Did you get called a nerd and shoved into a locker? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly. I actually found three other students who were interested in it. And um, no, four. And we went to a bunch of different, like, uh, meetings of um, different groups that were saying that they were dealing with the issue. Mm-hmm. But the problem was most of them were liberal groups. And right. so whenever we would ask, like, what do we do about this? They would say, write your congressperson, sign right. this petition, right. write a letter to the editor of your paper. <laughs> and, um, you know, even as a non-politicized person, really, or new politicizing person, I understood that that wasn't going to be enough. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know what could work. I mean, I had never heard of any other options. And I think that's so that's was, actually like a really good point because I feel like even um, in our adult lives, and uh, even myself as an adult, like I probably I didn't get, start getting really uh, politicized, so to speak, and uh, until uh, I'm 31 now. And I probably started getting really interested in politics in my late twenties. And when I started, when I joined the workforce, I was working in offices and cubicles, and I, you know, I just started thinking like, you know, things aren't right here. Like, why are we accepting this sort of corporate structure? I didn't like the power behind it. And for a period of time, I would say my politics were. I started drifting towards the libertarian side of things because uh, that's what uh-huh. made most sense to me. Um, and then, it, it, really, only like a few years ago. Uh, I get a similar experience. A friend of mine uh, sent me some books. Like I didn't know he was like a, a sort of communist at the time. He never really um, made it public. Uh, but yeah, he sent me. He, I started asking, all, talking all this, uh, talking about all these issues and stuff. And he sent me a bunch of books. He sent me uh, uh, Engels' uh, Origins of uh, the State and you know, Private Property and uh, the Family. Uh, uh-huh. In the other order that I said those, but yeah, Engels' book, and I read that, and uh, I read uh, People's History, and then I just from there I just started going over reading like all this stuff. Started uh, getting into the uh, read the manifesto and started reading Das Capital, um, uh-huh. and uh, then I really found something that like this is finally because it like the libertarian side of it didn't resolve all the things that you know all the inconsistencies that I saw in my you know in my life. It didn't seem like I had any real answers, and then. Um, the communism with Marxism seems like it presented a more uh, sort of a better understanding of the world. Uh, but yeah, I think it's hard to convince people that 
you know, the system itself isn't going to address all the problems. So the, the solutions that are always presented or the uh, sort of quote-unquote rational solutions that are presented are always um, go to the system for for anything. So you write your congressman, yep. you try and petition, you, you do all these things through these supposed, like, uh, you know, peaceful means or all these other things. Uh, but really it's just a, a way of sort of, like, venting you vent, and then nothing really happens. Maybe you get piecemeal at best. Um, exactly. But it's hard to overcome people because there really is, a, especially in the class level, like if you're coming from, you know, a, so to speak, middle class um, family, it's hard to see that your class position might be clouding uh, your judgment because the system kind of mostly works for you. So you think the reasonable solution is just to write your congressman. Right, or even if you start to understand that that's not working, unless somebody really points out something else, it's hard to conceptualize. Like, um, the first time I met somebody who talked to me about revolution, Mm. it was like my mind was blown. It's like, oh, this isn't something that just happens long ago and far away, but we could actually do this ourselves. Yeah, and that's, I think that's important too, is like the concept of revolution isn't in the past, it's always going on. Yeah. And to think that this is something we can accomplish if we work for it and organize for it, that, you know, that's a really, that was a turning point for me. Yeah. And so you consider yourself um, an organizer for revolution. Would you, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yep. you know, without, I don't know how much you want to share, but what exactly um, does that entail? And how would you get people... Like, so somebody convinced you that, hey, this is what we need to do. How, what's your pitch? Like, how do you get other people involved, and how do you do the organizing? And, and so what's to be done? What is the work to be done? Well, I think that's a, that's a huge question, and mm. there are a lot of things that we need to be doing. Um, but I think at the heart of all of them is the working class needs to be organized. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to be out there building organizations at different political levels Um, by which I mean revolutionary organizations that are explicitly about that. Mm -hmm. But for those who are not really there yet, um, I think intermediate-level organizations and mass-level organizations that are built around issues at a a lower level of political unity or a broader level, I should say, Mm -hmm. um, that still are addressing the fundamental conflict between capital and uh, labor. Mm-hmm. So uh, struggles around um, workplace issues, or organizing workers to um, control their own organizations and run them themselves and to struggle for their their rights and better conditions. And in that process, um, you know, master the process, the practice of struggle, you know, for their class interests. And one of the things that I liked, um, so I read your book, you're uh, also an author, uh, wrote the book Capitalism Must Die, um, and I really enjoyed that book, and it's sort of like, it's, uh, for people listening, it's a, check it out, um, it's like a good primer on sort of what communism is, and it uh, also has your great uh, illustrations in there, um, and I think it's really important, because if you go back and, I would recommend that people do read, um, you know, as much as you can about this stuff, read, read Marx, read Engels, read everybody that you can, um, 
but it's some of that stuff because it's old. You know, it's written like 150 years ago or like 100 years ago. Uh, I think it's good to have contemporary uh, sort of revolutionary literature that sort of takes these ideas uh, and presents it in a language that, you know, today's people speak, that people can kind of connect to in modern times. And I think you did that really well in that book, and I think it's a really important thing to uh, connect people with. Um, oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm glad you think it's effective. Yeah, no, I think it's good, and I, I hope I can convince people to uh, go check it out, uh, all, all three people who listen to this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I do think it's, uh, it's an important thing, and it's hard because, you know, you bring up, I think we're at a stage, too, where a lot of the working class, uh, in America at least, are sort of drifting towards this uh, like, like Tea Party or like more conservative movements. And that are completely against their own interests. So it, that's a, another huge question: is how do we get the actual working class in America um, sort of class conscious and working within their own interest? And yeah, that's yeah. a big question because it's true the the capitalist class knows that if they don't organize workers to act in the interests of capital, then workers are going to organize themselves to act against them. Yeah. So that's why. I think they're working so hard to um, both construct organizations that seem like anti-capitalist or they seem like things workers would want, or they co-opt organizations mm. that already exist. And I think that's behind the proliferation of NGOs and um, even the establishment unions who yeah. don't really have workers in charge of them and are not combative against the capitalists at all anymore. They're basically selling workers out right and left. Um, so, yeah, it's really, yeah, I think, labor unions now are, um, you know, I, I mean, they're, of course, being like in a labor union is as a worker is better than not having a job where you're not in one. But, yeah, it's kind of like a double purpose of labor unions because on one hand, it's still like a hierarchical organization and it's been pretty much bought out by capital. And the, People up the chains in unions are usually pretty well paid and well taken care of, um, while the people at the bottom are yeah, well, not so much. But uh, on one hand, the union kind of does work for the workers and better than uh, they would get on their own. Uh, but then on the uh, on the other side of it, uh, politicians can use and have used uh, labor unions as a scapegoat too. Um, it works both ways. It's uh, it's fascinating. I'm, I'm always blown away by um, how much control like uh, the capitalist class has, or how uh, effective they've gotten at like psychological control. And it kind of sounds like you know, talking about these things, we kind of drift into, or it sounds like we're drifting into uh, these like conspiracy theories of like mind control. But I don't I don't think people realize how subtle propaganda is, and like how most of our propaganda is just like. It's like propaganda by omission. Like, you watch, like, any kind of corporate-controlled news. They tell you one side of events. Like, I've gotten really good, or at least I think I have. I've gotten uh, good at, like, I turn on, like, you know, turn on CNN and you watch a news story. And what's more important than what they say is what they leave out. Like, especially in uh, international events, like, you know, they'll be talking about the, the civil war in Yemen. Uh, and they'll always bring up how one side is backed by Iran, right? They'll always talk about, oh, these Iran, Iranian-backed rebels, but then they never make a mention uh, to the rebels that are backed by Saudi Arabia and the United States. They'll never, like, say, oh, yeah, and also the United States is backing these guys. And same thing in the, in the Ukraine. It's like, oh, Putin's a madman, and he's uh, 
trying to take over the world or whatever they're trying to convince people of. It's like, yeah, I agree. Putin's not a good guy. He's he's probably a monster. <laughs> but also, NATO, you're not mentioning how NATO is basically backing fascists to overthrow the Ukraine and just to uh, take more steps towards uh, destabilization of Russia. And, you know, when we talk about these things, it's kind of hard not to sound conspiracy theory-like. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they... Just because we don't believe in conspiracy theories doesn't mean that they're not conspiring. I mean, right. they control the media. They work very, very hard to dominate us ideologically, mm-hmm. and so that our, all our habits and thoughts are serving them. And it it, it is very um, overwhelming. And um, once you start to see it, it does seem kind of intense. You know that. Yeah. All the information that we're getting, basically through the, the mass media, is well, it's in their interests because they own it, and they're that's the purpose. Yeah, it's to sway your thoughts, and it's it, the it's not like I think people think of like propaganda as like in your face, sort of like obvious. And it's like it's no, it's uh-huh. very very subtle stuff. It's all built around our culture, and they've been working on it for a long time, and they've gotten really good at it, and uh, that's why like. Um, so, like, your, your uh, illustrations, which I think are great, um, some people might consider it, like, propaganda or um, uh, agitprop. Would you describe it as agitprop? I would, yeah. yeah. I think propaganda is a neutral term that basically yeah. just means that you're trying to convince somebody to agree with you. Exactly. Um, and you're doing it from a point of view and a, and a set of interests. Mm-hmm. And there's never any such thing as objective truth or objective... Um, opinion that's not tied to a class position or class right. interest. Exactly. So, yeah. So everything is propaganda in a sense. You know, even just the, the very foundations of capitalist society, the idea of the sanctity of private property mm. is behind basically everything we think nowadays. You know, just we need to buy things and we want to own things and all these impulses that feel very natural to us are actually the conditioned result of propaganda that's been for hundreds of years as the capitalist class has arisen and overthrown feudalism had they been pounding into people's heads you know that freedom means the freedom to own private property yeah yeah, and, and that's and when you think about it, like just sort of in like philosophical terms, like that's when things start really crumbling. Uh, it's like private property is just an idea. All it is is an idea. You can't own anything. Like you really can't own anything. Like all the only thing that you can own is, is the stuff that you can maybe hold in your hands, and that only lasts as long as you can hold it for. Everything else is just exactly. a concept of ownership. Things are yours because, and it's and it's a concept that is also like socially agreed upon. Whether that agreement is dictated from the top uh, down or bottom up. So, like right now, we have a top-down structure where ownership, uh, something becomes mine not because I paid for it. Something is mine because other people agree that it's mine. That's the only way ownership of things work. Is there has to be a social understanding that that thing is exclusive to you. Uh, and once you start thinking about that, then the idea of it just sort of crumbles. Uh, it's just a yep. thought. And we can totally rebuild society around um, not that thought, <laughs> just communal ownership of stuff. Everybody has equal share to things. It's really not that uh, hard to imagine it, although it is hard to see it coming or, or how to bring that change about. And I think, 
because uh, I, I would say like a couple years ago, even a couple years ago, I was probably less um, quote unquote radical, or, or in my thinking anyway. I don't I, like like we were saying before, like uh, you know, write your congressman, and that's all all you um, think of as like the, the process to change things. Uh, for me, so far, with my, my my biggest step so far is this podcast. <laughs> that's as far as I've gone. Uh, I'll probably go further, but. Um, yeah, it's like, how do you bring about that change? And every day I start thinking, like, well, nothing really will change without, like, the system isn't going to address your needs unless you make them. And the only way to make them is to put a credible threat of violence on them. That's the only way it's going to work. And, um, and when you start talking about this stuff, you know, people, there's such this idea of, like, peaceful resistance and we no, we have to do everything peacefully. It's like I don't think anybody is for nobody wants a war or like wants a civil war anywhere. Like that would be terrible. But uh-huh. uh, the people in power aren't just going to hand over power. Like how are you going to make them do that? They're they're not benevolent. They're not just going to hand it to you. You have to make them do it. You have to force their hand, and it's an unfortunate situation. Uh, but we're put in that yeah. position. I totally agree, and like you said, when the idea breaks down and the legitimacy of their rule is um, no longer widely believed, mm. then what they have to back that up is the power of the state, right. and so they're going to use violence to keep what they have, and they, they do. They use it all the time, and I think we can also um, look at violence as not just you know, people um, fighting each other with guns, but it's also the day-to-day force that they use to keep people in a position of having to struggle to survive, people who are hungry, people who are, you know, beaten down by the, the police or different forms of oppression or just the grind of having to offer your labor power to a capitalist for a wage that and they take whatever you make and, and that this is the setup that we have no choice over, all of that is violence, too. I agree. And this was always, that was always something that never made sense to me as a child. Uh, like, I question this a lot, but, like, you know, my parents are uh, white suburbanites, grew up in, uh, you know, north of Boston. Uh, and, you know, their, their parents, they come from, um, their parents were working class, and my dad worked in uh, General Electric for, like, 40 years, and... Uh, you know, they and they were also the product of like the baby boomer boomer generation who did have, um, uh, you know, at least a little bit better of a head start, so to speak, on uh, on our generation. But uh, they, yeah, uh, I forgot my point. It was <laughs> it was something about that. The, the oh, the idea that um, when I was growing up, it's like, you know, the, their whole thing was push push me to go to you know you got to go to school, you got to go to college, and so you could go to college, get your degree, so you can get a job. And all that sounded good, but I was started thinking, you know, I had jobs as a teenager, and it's like, I never understood, like, why adults, like, thought it was good to be going to college, get out of college, just so you could go be somebody's servant, you know? Like, you're, you're somebody's uh-huh. employee. Like, what is that? Like, that, to me, that wasn't freedom. It never meant freedom to me. And they were like, well, you get paid for it, and hopefully you get a good paycheck, and then you can do whatever you want to do with that money. But, uh... That never seemed like freedom to me, even though I wasn't like, I didn't have any class consciousness and I was a pretty stupid kid, um, but it never, it just didn't make sense to me why people would like willingly subjugate themselves 
under somebody uh, who has a title of boss for what? Why? Why does that person have any authority over you? (laughs) I don't know. I I would say I was, uh, I questioned a lot of things. I was just very, uh, I didn't read a lot. I was very poorly read, Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm trying to make up for in my adult life. Um, So uh, as you as an artist, though, like, do you find that uh, your art is a good way of reaching people? And is it a good, uh, it's, Art that serves, like, two purposes, I assume. One, you get in your message out, and two, uh, do you feel, like, catharsis? You know, it's like cathartic release. You're able to express yourself in the way that you see fit. Um, I do, but that's sort of a secondary thing. Mm. I think the main thing is um, what, whatever I do serves the goal of building organizations to mm-hmm. fight capitalism. It's not really about my feelings at all, mm. um, although... It, it corresponds to my feelings, um, but that's not really the goal. So, yeah, I think the reason that I do cartoons is because I I do think they're very accessible and people are attracted to them. They like, you know, seeing, um, especially, like, I put the cute animals and the bright colors <laughs> and stuff like that, yeah. and it kind of makes the message a little bit easier to handle because the message is kind of challenging, Right. and a lot of people don't really want to hear difficult things about, um, you know, what it's going to take to actually make changes. So I, I consciously combined those difficult messages with the accessible images in order to try to reach more people and have it be easily shared. And it's something I think people can um, not just appreciate themselves, but share with other people and more easily than, than say, like, longer theoretical pieces, although those are important, too. Right, but, like, yeah, Um, it's a lot easier to get somebody to look at a cartoon than slamming down, like, Das Capital, which is, like, 900 pages of, you know, (laughs) boring, but, uh... Right, the cartoon's the gateway, and Capital is the the room that they need to go into eventually. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, But do you find... uh, See, this is the problem, because I do... I also do stand-up comedy, although my interest in that has kind of... uh, waned as I've become uh, more political because I find it hard um, uh, to express myself on stage in a way that um, people can understand because I've been trying to present these ideas in the stand-up routine and it's been pretty hard um, because people people kind of think you're nuts uh, which I'm fine with but uh, it also because I don't know if you're um, like comics form like a little like you know there's it's sort of like a fraternity so to speak um and there's, like, a little art scene, and it can be really good, but it also, like, if you're alienated or alienate yourself from that scene, uh, you know, it's hard to perform, it's hard to get up, like, people won't book you because they don't want you making a stink in their room, or, like, oh, that guy's just going to talk about this stuff, and he's, uh, you know, people are going to, he's going to make people upset. So, I was like, so there's, it's, I have problems with, um, sort of like this idea of art in our society because it's very, again, like everything else in our society, it's, it's individualistic but then like there's also like art scenes and those art scenes sort of just form like their own like artistic bourgeoisie and they crowd out yeah. people who have like uh, or at least sometimes they can uh, crowd out people who have too radical of a message. Because even I find like a lot of, um, you know, like art or stuff that has like, like you see like um, like social art it's always, like, with a sort of vague message, you know? It's always like, hey, here's a... And, and that's fine, that's good, like, to say, like, oh, look at 
you know, here's a picture of oppression in whatever way. Like, that's always good, but, like, the, the message is always vague, and that leaves room enough uh, for, like, maybe the mainstream media to pick it up. But when you have a very, very specific message, uh, and that message is about, like, overthrowing the ruling class, like, there's no way of that ever breaking through to the, you know, upper echelon or the, of the media or getting exposed to really a, a wider base than that. I think you're raising a really important point for artists in general and political artists specifically. Um, artists tend to, I mean, our class position is in the petty bourgeoisie. Yeah, basically, I'm in the petty bourgeoisie. We're to make a living. Mm-hmm. So our, our interests are going to be generally not revolutionary. Mm-hmm. So if we are a revolutionary artist, it's a big struggle because, yeah, our art's not going to get paid for mm-hmm. by any bourgeois media in, yep. of any kind. Um, and also the general artistic um, scene, like you're saying, is not going to be very accepting of us because mostly they're going to be liberals, yep. maybe slightly progressive, but they're definitely mostly not going to have the character of being um, revolutionary or even wanting to deal with the interests of the working class. So what I've discovered, you know, just through a long process, I tried to become accepted in the communities of various, various communities of cartoonists, Mm -hmm. and while, you know, some respect me, I guess, because I have a clear message and I can get it across, most of the time they don't really like my work, I think, (laughs) Um, (laughs) so it's been kind of... Like, I've always felt a little bit like an outsider, even among the people that I talk with who do the same kind of work, like the cartooning work, um, but are not on the same political page. So I have never been able to build an audience. I tried at first to build an audience among people who like comics, and that really did not work. So I decided at a certain point that um, not to focus on the form, but on the content, and to try to build an audience among people who are politicized who are coming into political life and who want that message. Mm-hmm. And never mind if they really care about comics or not. So that has worked like a million times better um, because I think those are the readers who really appreciate what I'm trying to say as opposed to caring about the form. Right. And that might help you as well. Like if instead of going to a comic club where most people just want to hear stupid jokes about, you know, <laughs> farts dieting and or whatever, and, yeah. Yeah, farts. <laughs> To find venues where people are already trying to build something politically and then bring comedy into that mix. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you have a good sense of humor sometimes. Uh, some, some, sometimes some communists are, uh, you know, very serious people <laughs> who, who you can joke with, uh, but then, you know, certain things, it's like, uh, all right. Um, but yeah, uh, one, and I think this also gets to a good point because, like, and this is podcast, by the way, is uh, put out by a, a very funny comic uh, and progressive, uh, uh, he runs this uh, uh, internet radio site, uh, Crab Diving, uh, if anybody's uh-huh. listening on crabdiving.com, uh, and he's been very nice enough to uh, host my my communist corner over here, um, but uh, the, yeah, with the progressives, it's like, because we both, like, I would say, uh, myself and my progressive friends, we all sort of want, we want capitalism to be overthrown, and we want it done, but like... Or the way of getting there is just a different philosophy. Like, um, progressives mostly see, like, you know, they see that activism is important, um, like, protesting is important in getting, but they 
still see like we need a political candidate. And a few years ago, I would have totally been for Bernie Sanders running for president. Um, uh-huh. Currently, I think Bernie Sanders is clearly the best uh, candidate out of a horrible bunch of people. Um, but yeah, like I think progressives see him as like now he's the he's the answer. But um, I, I, like the more I read, the more I think like there, there's nothing that he can really do. Like, what can he even do? Like, say he even gets elected, what can he do? Right. Like, Congress would stop him from doing most of the things that he would probably want to do. Like, most of his, I'm, I'm sure he has, he has some nice reforms that he wants to do. Uh, but like, how is he actually going to enact that? Especially with the Republican Congress, um, it's not going to happen. Yeah, and, exactly. and, and I think this brings up the difference between, like, revolutionary thought and then reformism, uh, if you want to talk on, on that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, Bernie Sanders, it doesn't matter how sincere he is or how much he wants to help people. It, within the framework of capitalism, you're not going to get socialism. You can't elect socialism in a capitalist framework. They are not going to hand over power to a com- and completely transform their mode of production and put the working class in power through their, their state apparatus. It, it just won't happen. Um, so I think we really need to be constructing our, our, our alternative to that. You know, um, The only way forward into a different kind of um, mode of production that will eliminate class divisions and eliminate oppression and exploitation is by the working class building itself up organizationally and becoming capable of running society. Um, there's really no shortcut to that, and there's no path to that through um, reforms. You know, all that Bernie Sanders will be able to do is bring certain small reforms. But capital itself needs to grow. That's how it functions. It needs to exploit. That's how it functions. And it's going to do that no matter who is in office. And it's, it's going it, to, it will do whatever it has to do to, to um, survive and keep accumulating for that class. And uh, I think it would be good to actually mention, like, who is the working class and who is not the working class, because I think everybody kind of assumes that if they have a job, they are automatically in the working class. And that was something I thought for a while, too, but um, the, that's not what the working class really is, even though, like, I would say, like, I'm, I'm probably paid better than, I don't know, like, probably most people, because wages are outrageous, but, like, I still don't make a lot of money myself, and I just have, like, an office job. Uh, but, like, office jobs really aren't working class. Um, can you describe what the working class really is? Because I think you did this good in uh, Capitalism Must Die. Oh, thank you. I think it is something that is very confusing because, mm-hmm. um, especially since the U.S. has shifted to a largely service-oriented economy yeah. and pushed a lot of the lower um, production jobs offshore, and a lot of the production jobs that do still exist in the U.S. are kind of highly trained technical production jobs that are highly paid so you have that class has become a little conservative mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think there's a difference between people who work and the working class there are a lot of people who work who um, have to sell their, their time to serve you know serve others as you were as the way that you put it mm-hmm. um, we uh, yeah, are basically participating in the circulation of capital rather than the production of it. And I would say we need to look at the heart of what capital is. Capital is 
the production of surplus value. It's um, the only way that a society can produce new value under capitalism is through the exploitation of workers in the process of material production, so industry. Um, I would say that people who work in industry are, is, that's who the working class is because they're the ones who produce that new value that becomes capital. Like and physically, so physically like bolting together the cars on the assembly line or putting together your, uh, you know, like, or, or digging up the raw materials that then go into that, uh, that car that's being made or assembling the electronics, like, and you're right, like all that stuff, well, not all of it, but a good chunk of it has been moved to like Southeast Asia. Um, and those are really like the, the working class uh, people. And, and right now we do have a lot of service. Uh, like I just work, I work customer service. I work, and that's all my jobs have ever been is like customer support or tech support and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does, uh, that also brings to a good point though, because uh, right now the United States is like the main imperialist force and the force, uh, main driving force, I guess, behind capitalism and has shipped labor largely overseas, then, like, a revolution can't just be, like, even a revolution within the United States overthrowing the United States government uh, and forming, like, a communist or socialist society, like, that still won't be enough. Um, Uh It needs to be a real internationalist uh, movement, right? I agree, yeah. The working class is an international class. And as so are they, so is the capitalist class. Mm. And eventually, yeah, it will have to be, it'll probably be uneven and will happen differently in different um, particular countries, but I do think it's an international movement and we can really only complete the process if the whole world is involved. Yeah, and unfortunately, like, I don't know, like, um, I assume, like, the movements right now, or at least the movements in America to organize, like, I don't know how, you probably have a tough time of it, I would assume, in Florida, um, and I would also, uh, I would be, if I was there, I'd be very worried for my well-being, <laughs> being, like, publicly communist, uh, uh, but yeah, like, I, I, unfortunately, I don't think, like, anything is going to happen until capitalism really wrecks it for, like, like, you know, causing a real environmental disaster that, um, really forces a large segment of society to realize, hey, we're like, wake up, look what happened. Um, uh-huh. and, and once, like, sort of living conditions drop and things plummet, I think then that would maybe, uh, hopefully expedite the process a little bit. Um, do you think, do you see it, like, happening, uh, another, do you see, like, the working class getting, like, sort of class conscious and acting as, uh, acting as one, uh, like, what do you think will happen First, like, do you think a big another big collapse, an environmental disaster will happen, or do you think that uh, the working class can sort of organize and form a movement that challenges the ruling class, uh, sort of in time before the environment gets too bad? It's hard to say. I think we're in a very dangerous place right now because we don't have a very developed movement. You know, that's very apparent, Um, and we're the left has been very disorganized and in disarray and the working class itself a lot of them are under the ideological domination of capital so they really don't even see their interests or even understand that they are a class Um, so and global warming seems to be accelerating and so it's kind of a race against time you know are we going to be able to do this before we all fry (laughs) I don't know Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of feel pessimistic sometimes in a way like that 
maybe, you know, the chances are not good, but on the other hand, we really have no other option. So we really have to be pulling all of our energy together um, to make it happen, to organize, to get out there, to try and just talk to people, you know, get, get people involved as much as possible, because otherwise, our fate will be... Right. As always, at Democracy Hat, we're ending on a grim note. <laughs> Climate change destroying the planet. Uh, that concludes uh, this week's episode of Democracy How. Uh, we're going to pick up next week with uh, the rest of my interview with Stephanie McMillan. Uh, check out her work, her cartoons. Uh, get to, uh, she publishes cartoons at workersstruggle.org. Uh, skewednews.net and also her own website uh, stephaniemcmillan.com nope, sorry, .org uh, stephaniemcmillan.org check out her book, uh, Capitalism Must Die it's a good read, it's a good primer on Marxism, you might put into context some of the things that I say on this uh, podcast and uh, it's more illustrative, so it helps rather than my vague rambling about it alright, thanks for listening, tune in next week goodbye